Hey guys, welcome to the Back Yourself Show. This week on the show, we have Guy Harrington. He is the CEO and founder of Glenhawk, a super successful company in the property finance space. So without further ado, let's just jump into it. So Guy, thanks for coming on. Um, we've already just before the show commented on how sensational your hair is. So anyone who's tuning in, please do like and comment because it's unreal. I'm so proud of it. Uh, I'm jealous as well. Um, but look, before we get underway, let's imagine that we're on a first date. Tell me about yourself. Introduce yourself. Tell me what you do and where you're from. Yeah, th- thanks for having me firstly, Tom. Um, a first date, crikey, it's been a while since I had one of those. Um, so yeah, it's... I hope that's, a, I hope that's because... You're married, not because it's been it's going really badly. Yeah, just to clarify, I'm engaged in case there was anyone. All oh, right, it's it's not because you know you 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 can't get a date. It's because you're. A... I'm a, okay. I'm not that awful. I think maybe the hair swings it sometimes. Um, but so I'm guy. I uh, I started Glenhawk, a uh, what would we call a, a non-bank lender or non-bank financial institution, uh, around two and a half years ago. Um, I was spurred on to start Glenhawk uh, as I was and I still am a, a property developer. Um, for investors and for myself. And I found a niche in the market for a new non-bank lender, someone who was more transparent, who was fair, who didn't rip clients off with fees, and who actually understood the journey that borrowers wanted to go on. So I set about putting a case together, um, very much similar to, as we were talking before we started, Tom, you were saying about cash flow and uh, thinking, how the hell did we do that? Um, I got my notepad out, started planning, had never run a financial firm before, put together a deck of probably 10, 12 pages, went to two or three investors that I knew who had backed me on, uh, on property projects and raised around 19.5 million to, to start Glenhawk. Um, and that was back in, yeah, January, 2018, we launched. So as I say, we're a non-bank lender. We're not a broker. We uh, lend our own funds uh, in-house with, uh, with no external credit committees. And uh, we are funded by JP Morgan. Uh, we closed a securitization with them back in March, just before the whole world uh, melted down. So quite interesting timing. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been a fun journey the last two and a half years. And we're on a good growth trajectory now. We're a good, solid, stable business of, I think we've got about 30 people in here now based out of Mayfair. Uh, and we're lending around 160 million a year, 180 million uh, at, our, at our current run rate to small developers, uh, buy-to-let landlords, people who need a bridge while they've just purchased their new home while they need to sell their own home. And um, pretty much any solution you can imagine that's in the, in the short-term finance space, really, that's related to, uh, related to property. God, that is like a punch in the face of a story. Wow. I mean, there's so many things I've got to dig into there. I mean, these numbers are blowing my mind. Okay, so let's start a little bit further back. So you, you were a property developer. Now, I'm pretty Mac. I well, my attitude towards property developers is always a little bit, bit blase because I'm not one. Um, so I'm always like, property development is that just buying a house, um, adding some laminate flooring, painting the walls white, and then selling it on for more, or like, and is obviously there's more to it than that. So you were a property developer. So was that your full time job? Like, what and how did you get into that? I don't want to have a huge lecture about what I did in my twenties because it is it will go on and on. I think I've, I've always been. I mean, the word entrepreneur is thrown around really, but to me, it's just someone who takes takes a risk, looks at an opportunity, finds an arbitrage within that and builds a business off the back of it. And I really did that. I left uni, or I dropped out of uni at Sheffield Hallam. I'm originally from, uh, from Derby. Um, so I went to Sheffield Hallam University. I dropped out mainly due to, I was reading a lot of the textbooks on property development. Um, yes. And I think the, probably the trigger was for me when I was younger, this sounds bizarre, was when I played Monopoly 
I always wanted to own Mayfair on the Monopoly board. And I always had this weird thing inside of me of oh, this, this comfort of owning property or developing some sort of trading within property. And back then I didn't have a clue how I was going to do it. I didn't have any money. Uh, didn't have any big handouts from my parents. Didn't have anything to like fall back on. So dropped out of uni mainly because I've been self self-taught uh, property development that I was studying there. Is that what you were studying? So you were studying property development and you were like, do you know what the reality of it is? Like, and I, I'm totally in on that game because you're like, you know, there's, I was, I was giving um, a lecture at uni the other week and I was like uh, about selling to um, enterprises. And I was just like, I'm basically telling these guys like everything that they just learned if they just went and got a job. Like why, why, are you in, why are you in a classroom asking me how to sell to a bank? Like just go and, go and get a job. Like, the, the, the best way is to learn, learn on the job or try and self-educate. And essentially that's what I did was I bought, had all the textbooks, read through it all and thought, you know what, I'm going to go out there and give it a go. So as a segue from that, during the time I was at university, I set up a mobile phone sale or return business. I was going to the local mobile phone store saying, have you got the 8210 in? Have you got the uh, 7210? Have you got the flip phone? Um, and the new Sirocco, whatever it was back in the day. 7210, what a classic. Yeah, they were yeah. classics. And they were still in demand back then. And I used to take them on sale or return from the local phone shop in Chesterfield and sell them into the university. And I built a relationship up there built a small pool of capital up, like 25, 30,000, something like that. That's quite a big pool of capital for a student. <laughs> it was quite interesting, but I just liked mobile phones at the time. Um, and then I bought a Vitalet in Derby with that. So that's what got me started on the whole, I suppose, property game. I bought it, winged it, didn't really know what I was doing. So how, wait, wait, so, so help, me, help me understand this, because I mean, I'm, 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 I'm all in on this story, guy. This is amazing. So, I mean, I, and I believe that an entrepreneurial spirit in you is kind of like, it's kind of there from day one. Like, I think people just kind of feel that. They kind of have this thing where they be like, they look at a problem and they think, do you know what? I think I can solve that a bit better than other people can. There's a self-confidence there. Yeah. And you've done that and you've looked at it and you've been like, hey, yeah, that's 7210. I always remember about the 7210. It's the phone in the Craig David seven days video. Never forget that. I'll never forget that. Um, <laughs> I think Craig David's still 30 years old though. He never seems to age that guy. He's, he doesn't. He's, he's a hero to everyone. Um, but the, um, and so you get that. You, you managed to go, I mean, you just slide in there. You've gone from buying a couple of phones to having a pool of funds of 25K as a student. That took about 18 months, I'd say. And in, Casually. in that time, I was yeah. slowly dropping out of uni. I went to live yeah. at home for a bit. My parents were like, you're an idiot. Well, they call me an idiot. They just said, <laughs> they'd, like any Behind your back, they did. Yeah, they, they probably, yeah. They would have preferred me to stay that, for sure. Um, so then I always had this big dream of moving to London. My dad always used to say to me, um, I won't do his Northern accent. He, he, he used to be an engineer at the water board and he used to say to me, well, if you're going to go to London, you've got to get a job, son. You need to earn money if you're down there. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. So I don't know. I can't remember how I got the connection, but I met a guy at a car exhibition years ago in probably when I was like 22 and he ran a car exporting business in Windsor in Berkshire. And he said, oh, we just got on very well. And I, I've always like enjoyed cars as a hobby, went to watch them at racetracks and uh, they're all very exciting. And what car have you got now, Guy? Because I know there's going to be a, there's something in there. What car have you got now? Oh, I never I don't like to talk about cars. Um, yeah, a couple of interesting bits, mainly Italian um, bits, but... Um, and so, so unsubtle, but I like what you do. But I'm not that person that drives down the street with a window down going, look at me. I, it's for me, it's a hobby and it's a passion. I'm not a look at me I don't I don't actually enjoy it at all and um 
yeah, they're a bit of a hassle because they break down all the time. But don't don't be shy about it. Don't be shy. You've earned the right. Yeah. No, no, no. Um, so yeah, and I had that interest. So he took me on. That was my only ever PAYE or normal job. Um, and Raj hired me, I think, for like two years, and we're exporting cars to Asia. And at the same time, I was looking at into London and going, right, I really want to live in London, but I can't afford it. Um, how am I going to go and get in there and start developing essentially and uh, with my own funds which I didn't have at the time really I had a small amount from the from the vital lane Derby yeah. so went into London started speaking to estate agents started trawling through right move prime location all those sites at the time trying to find an angle that I could go to an investor with and go listen I found something here let's let, let's uh, let's exploit let's exploit this and um, see what we can do and that exploitation I found was uh, ground floor flats in the Sandsends area part of Fulham were achieving lower pound per square foot values in the northern part of Fulham at the time. And I thought, okay, how can we, how can we work on this? So I put a package together, went around the, all, all the estate agents and I said, do you have any investors that might be interested in me essentially running these projects for you? Uh, I'll do the acquisition, the management, the project and essentially the sale. And yeah, I came across two or three people that I sat down in front of and you know very well, Tom, that in business, it's all about selling yourself and you've got to be extremely good at sales, whether it's you're trying to get a new member of staff on, whether you're trying to get a, I don't know, a pay rise or you're trying to get investors on board, you've got to sell yourself. And I think that never really that. came naturally to me. I, I did find it quite hard back then, but overall, truth and honesty wins through. And clearly investors always see that. They want to know they're dealing with a straight shooter and they want to see um, that you're going to deliver. So got two or three investors together, pulled the funds, and then started developing in London. Um, and then shortly after that, I left working in the car business, exporting cars to Singapore and Thailand, which was, which was great fun. Moved into London, into a um, road called Gwende Road, just off um, uh, Cromwell Road, and, uh, and then started property in London, which was quite exciting, quite scary. Definitely learned a hell of a lot of it on the job and yeah. winged quite a lot of the situations, but... Um, yeah, and, and it worked out from there. And then I suppose in, in summary, on the back of that, um, I attracted a, a major investor probably three years after that who backed me on some larger projects, um, a couple in Knightsbridge, uh, a big one in Fulham. Um, and then ultimately, it's the same investor that backed me in, uh, in Glenhawk as well. So, so on so, that long-term relationship, really. So talk me through that a little bit. So you, look, it... Whenever someone starts a business, it's because they, they might see an opportunity, but usually that opportunity is seen because they've seen a problem in the world and they want to solve it, okay? And you speak quite passionately at the beginning of this episode where you're saying how, you know, people are overcharging, you know, that they're exploiting people with their, you know, the way they, they, they do what it is you do. Now, what was your experience there? So did you get your fingers burnt? Were you in a situation where you personally were being affected by, was it bad rates or bad facilities or things taking too much time? What was, what was the problem that was happening that you wanted to solve? No, re really good question. Um, and I suppose the, the trigger point was we were borrowing off firms like ourselves back then, um, some of the market leaders and clearly to leverage our returns in the, in the assets. And I think the common theme among them was the fees they were charging. The, Clearly what we do, we're a, a short-term finance business, so we only want people to borrow from us for nine months. We can give you a loan on a million pound property within five days, whereas a bank clearly would take four or five months at the moment, uh, but we charge a slightly higher rate for that. So it's an opportunity cost trade-off, but you don't need to pile on all these crazy arrangement fees, exit fees, admin fees, insurance fees, all on top of the loan. 
and I think what compounded that issue was that the, the lenders themselves didn't understand what we were doing with the property. They'd send someone around to the house, have a look and go, okay, yeah, mm, I don't think that looks quite good yet. Or we'd actually have more experience than them. So I suppose the problem was one, the fees were too high and you can still run a commercially successful business in this space without taking your client's pants off essentially. And secondly, it was the experience of the underwriters and the team who came out to speak to you. Um, they didn't understand what you were doing. And clearly, it's never a, a good situation when you know more than the, than, than the lender that you're using. It's, uh, it, it shouldn't be that way around. So then I said about building a team of, I mean, solid experienced heads that not only have the finance side covered, but also the property side covered. So we can go to a client site and go, okay, we understand what you're doing here. And it takes us five minutes to understand the deal, as opposed to some of those lenders back then, you just get stuck in a credit cycle. And um, it would be like a computer says no sort of thing. When in reality, what we do is a very agile product. And um, it's not one size fits all. It's um, it, every loan is unique, every asset is unique. So um, I suppose that was the problem and, um, and, and how we solved it really. Man, I love that. I love that story. I love the way you've looked at that and you've seen it. And I think there's a big problem a lot. I mean, look, you see it a lot. So when you're raising money, it's a real problem as well. Like, you know, for the startups who are listening into this, they'll go into a room and they'll start talking to investors and they'll know so much more about their market. They'll know so much more about the growth opportunity, how they're solving the problem. And the person on the other side of the table, like VC is a hard job. You've got to know so many sectors and so many things are going on. And obviously they don't know as much as you do. And so there'll be situations where they're a bit like, nah, I don't think this is a good opportunity. No, I think your valuation's wrong or whatever. And it causes real problems and it causes a real disconnect. And you've seen exactly the same thing obviously in your sector. Now, guy, let's get into the, the weeds here. Okay, now, you've got to have a lot of confidence to start a lending business because you're up against banks. Now, if you're going to start a fight with someone, you know, someone who enjoys a little bit of combat, I always think it's a good recommendation to go to someone in the same weight. Whereas you've gone, do you know what? Fuck it. I'm going after a bank. Now, it must be quite laborious in terms of like FCA regulation and financials. It must be an absolute ball ache to try and start a lender. Now, you call yourself a non-bank lender. I don't know what that means. Non-bank lender. So we're a bank, but we're not a bank. So we have the same. That makes it clearer. I'm, I'm with you now. I've got it. <laughs> we're, we're, we're a lender, um, but we're not regulated by the Prudential Regulation Authority, which means that we can't hold client money. So we have um, other banks fund us to lend, essentially, because in a nutshell, we can lend quicker than a bank can. The banks know that. So they lend to us. Um, it, that, in summary, that's how it works. Okay, fine. Okay. I, I still don't really understand, but I'll pretend I do. Okay. Uh, okay. So yeah, you've gone up against a bank. Okay. Right. So that's pretty intense. Okay. First of all, so setting up again, like you must have had some, you must have taken quite a lot of capital to start up. I know you said you started off and you had like 19 and a half million as your first raise, but I guess that's not 19 and a half million to start your business. That's 19 and a half million to put on a book that you can lend to people. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's, um, that's, a, that's a hybrid. So about 16 and a half million of that was used to write loans with essentially on day one and build up our loan book and build yeah. up our track record. Because uh, in this space, day one you start off, um, no one will lend to you. So no banks will come to you and touch you. So it took us about eight months to attract a UK bank called Shawbrook and a, a pension fund called Insight. Uh, which they have about half a trillion under management uh, to come on board and back us essentially. And it's really hard to, as a, I can't say how hard it is to get that track record there. They drill through the company. They spend hundreds of hours looking into you because clearly these guys are lending you tens, if not hundreds of millions of pounds. 
and they want yeah. to make sure you're underwriting correctly, your team's good, you know what you're doing, and you've taken the appropriate risk mitigation. Um, so I'd say that was probably the, the hardest part in our space was to convince those guys to get on board for sure. Um, so, so, how, so how much, so you must have to put quite a lot of skin in the game to begin with. It was yeah. just kind of you and a couple, like how many of you were there on day one? So two, two of us on day one, I have a tiny office around the corner. I've still got the photo of me building the desk there because I love it. And I still build the desk here in the office when we have new ones in, just because I enjoy it. I was, I, was just, I was just doing it. I was, just, I was stacking the fridge. Yeah. <laughs> no one else would do it. <laughs> I was emptying the dishwasher really as well, actually. Um, and yeah, there were, there were just two of us back then. And yeah, you have to have a lot of skin in the game to start with. So the banks will want, uh, and clearly they, they will always want you to have quite a bit of risk in it. But starting off, they wanted a proportion of risk that was, let's say, they wanted us to have about 25% of every loan as risk. So for every 100 million we lend, they want us to have 25 million on our balance sheet, essentially. But as you grow and get bigger with our current funding situation, and we've just raised another debt platform to come into to Glen Hawk of 25 million, the amount of equity or risk that we have in the business reduces. And that's purely because of our track record, our experience and um, our due diligence we've done on all the underwriting that they can see. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to get them on board. That's, that's been our biggest challenge by far. Um, but it just takes time. And I'm a very frustrated person when it comes to waiting for things and like all like all good founders all good founders. if you're not if you're not moving quickly you're if you if you don't get upset by moving slowly stop being a founder and hire another ceo That's yeah i think like you have to be obsessed with pace and i do annoy people with it like ella our head of marketing i, I wind her up and uh, get her mad by saying oh well can't we she's do this on the this call week? by the way so she is, she'll, I know. Be she'll be she'll be thanking me for this and we have fallouts but they're very good fallouts it's almost like a bro brotherly sister tiff sort of thing um but it's you've always got to be driving people forward and challenging and if everybody likes me all the time then i'm probably doing something wrong but you clearly have to have a very strong culture in the business um but also be open to ideas and uh, and listen to everyone and uh have that, have that good working environment. Yeah, I like that. In the current climate, marketing is hard. But do you know what isn't hard? Making sure you never miss an episode of your favourite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. So a couple of startup questions for you. That's about the sector. So... Well, you're there, like, so you, it's a very unique business, okay, and um, what you're doing, but ultimately, like, you're providing a financial service, you know, you're like, you're, you're very similar to a fintech or something in that space, you're not a fintech, but you're, you're similar in that space, so you're providing a financial solution for people, right? Okay, so who's your first hire? You've hired with your, your you've got your, your, your mate who's come on, and I'm guessing he's the operationals and legals guy, right? When you're the guy going out winning the business, yeah? Um, so, no, he, first guy came on was uh, director of lending, so he was... Oh. Um, a chap who I was introduced to someone else. He was working at a lender on the corner. I said, would you like to come on board? Offered him a, like a share package, uh, like an incentive. Uh, and he was the first guy because really he could bring the loans in because he's a good salesman. He could underwrite them and he could uh, essentially complete the loans and get them out the door. So he was a, like almost four hats in one. Um, the secondary after that was operations, which was Annabelle. Uh, she was in from day one and still with us and so is Nick. And she was more just the operational side of the lending. So dealing with the valuers, dealing with the lawyers uh, and more the nitty gritty bits and pieces. And then I was out and about on the road trying to raise the senior funding from the bank and then obviously popping in and out of the office. So 
I mean, day one internally, yeah, we had two, um, but then it very quickly grows because these banks like to see you've got uh, a head of compliance. They like to see you've got audit procedures. They want you to have good finance functions and they are very people heavy, uh, not as people heavy as a bank, um, but you have to mitigate all the risks out that they see as well. So um, yeah, on day, on day one, we were spending a lot of plates, um, but I think it's like anything in, in when you're doing a business, a lot of it is you really don't know fully what you're doing. You're not winging it, you're sort of winging it, but you're just taking a calculated risk and you know it'll work out um, and you've got to find the solution. So if you don't find the solution, the business is just going to stop working. Well, that's it. It's, uh, it's, cal- it's just a culture of experimentation, isn't it? You know, you've got to constantly try to find a way to fix that problem. So how do you, so you mentioned culture a few times over the course of this, actually. So what, how do you, as a founder and experienced CEO, I mean, like I, I personally think the culture is king. I think it's what drives everything within an organization. Um, now you, how do you create the right culture in your organization where something which is so rigid in terms of regulations, there's only so much freedom around what you can do. And I imagine it is, it's quite, it's a hard gig to do and very technical. How do you create a culture in that, in that environment whereby everyone's working towards the same success? Yeah, I think that culture is infectious, I think. And if you, you bring in the right people at the start, then it spreads much like coronavirus, I suppose, to person to person. And it's like dominoes. You get one brilliant person in on the front end. They pass on their infectious personality and culture to the next one. I don't think, I almost think it's impossible to put culture in place in a business that's over 30 people already, or it's at a stage where you're going to have to change key figures and it's going to cause too much upset. And really it just starts from day one, I think. And by, by culture, I mean treating employees, stakeholders like humans um, whether it's we've got an unlimited holiday policy, for example, and that works super well because we give people enough rope. They go out, they work, but they respect um, that sometimes they might need to work on a Friday night while they're on holiday and write an email or something. And uh, statistically, we've only had average of 17 days off a year while we've been doing this unlimited holiday part. So in little things like that, and I suppose more recently, uh, paying awareness to mental health and giving people two additional days off a year over and above the unlimited that they'll take. So in theory, it's on top, um, where they can just have a mental health day. They can go to an art gallery, they can go and sit in a pub, they can go and walk around the park, and they just have to write me a little letter. They don't have to, um, saying what they felt during that day uh, and how they feel better. I love, I love that thing about the mental health. I think it's, uh, it's one of those things that people just don't. I mean, we talk about it more, but like people just forget about it. Burnout's a big thing. I don't know how you found lockdown. Um, well, I personally think I had a bit of lockdown burnout because you're like, I work in gaming and everyone's like, oh my God, everything's going to be massive. You've got to really smash it now because everyone's at home gaming. You've got to make your business sensational. And you're like, whoa, okay, yeah, I probably do. You know, so you, you burn out, right? This is what happens. You know, you've got to take some time out for yourself. I'm sure you've had similar experience to that. Okay, now... We're coming to the part of the show where we start asking a few questions that have come in from the fans. I call them fans. Yeah, we'll call them that. Yeah. Um, and they email in with loads of questions about like, you know, pitch decks and so forth. But before we get into that, I've got a question for you. Um, now, you are literally at the, the spear point of the property industry, right? Because you've got the super smart people doing the super smart investments, right? You know, it's not like Janet and Jack who are just moving up the road because they want to avoid the stamp duty. You know, you're in this guys who are seeing the real opportunities. What's going to happen? Tell me, should I be buying a house right now? If I should be, what should I be looking for? Um, how am I going to avoid losing money? Good question. Um, <clears throat> very, very interesting one, actually. I get asked this a lot. And clearly at the moment, there's a 
big boom in, uh, in, in house buying. And it has been for the last, what, eight weeks. I think today showed that house purchases were up essentially on volume 16 or 17% year on year. So there's a hell of a lot of activity out there. And it's not just people moving from London to the suburbs to the home counties or, or further. It's people moving into London as well, which kind of confuses me a little bit. There's people taking their place. So the London market's good. The outer London market seems good. And I don't think that's fully driven by the stamp duty changes that came in um, a month or so ago. I think there is a genuine appetite here that people have been cooped up in their homes for three or four months during lockdown. They've looked around, they've seen a cracked wall and they want to improve it. They want to knock it down or they want to move home and they've become frustrated with their homes. So we're definitely seeing a, a surge in pent up demand here. I think it'd be very naive of me to think that the boom will continue. Um, I think we're going to see some easing off as we go into the new year, whether it's the furlough ending, whether it's uh, huge job losses, which clearly are going to wash through at some point. Uh, very sadly, a lot of redundancies in, in the hospitality, transport and, and retail space uh, and probably other sectors as well. So I think it, it probably also depends on what area of the country you're in as well. Uh, if you're in London, you're going to be partially insulated because a lot of people can work from home if there is a second or third wave or whatever you want to call the current wave we're going through. And probably areas that have more concentration of people working that can't work from home, the values of their property may be hit because they might not be needed in their workplace anymore. So I think in summary, there's going to be a retrenchment uh, of the banks and a slowdown. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be anything like that we saw during the global financial crisis because the banks are liquid, assets are good, stress testing on mortgages has been very good for the last eight, nine years. So they haven't been lending willy-nilly to anyone. And there's a lot of non-bank lenders out there like us now that can fill that gap of liquidity when the banks slow down and stop lending. So yeah, there's going to be something happen. Um, but really, even the experts don't know. Um, Savills in January forecast that house prices would drop 15% by August. Uh, and they haven't. They've gone up by, what, 5% this year or something now. Um, so Savills got that wrong. And if they're getting it wrong, I'm definitely going to get it wrong. So, right, okay, fine. Yeah, sure. If you're holding a property for a long term, I always say this, if you're buying it for your own home, there's always a, it's never not a good time to buy, I don't think, because you're going to hold it for a period of time. There's sentimental value in there. Don't worry about it. But if you're buying it for an investment purpose, clearly monitor what happens with the market and um, just try and get as much information as you can and, and see where things may go. It's very sound advice. I mean, I, I don't feel any particularly more in, uh, I don't feel like you've given me the tip that I was hoping for. Um, I was hoping you were going to be like, Tom, go and buy this house on this road for this value. If I told you that, that's where I'd be buying them. So. <laughs> oh, I can see. Yeah, it's competitive. All right, fine. Nice. Um, I have another question actually for you before we get into the fan ones. Glenhawk. I love a company name and I love a story behind it. Now, I had a little bet with myself before I came on about where Glenhawk came from. Is it the name of a road? No. It Damn it! It does sound like a road though in maybe Neighbours or something like that. Yeah, what is it? Where's it come from? It's really not that exciting, but I've made it exciting now in hindsight. So I was looking for a name. I, was, I came across, I went on this brand buying website. We can buy basically a domain name with a brand attached to it called Novanym, N-O-V-A-N-Y-M.com. It's a UK-based company and you basically buy the brand and the domain name and they've done a logo. And it's really cool, just trawl through it. You can look at fintechs, gambling, whatever you want. They've all got wicked one word names on there. And I thought, I want this to sound like a bank, but not be a bank. So a lot of people in our space have capital after their uh, yes. name, their finance. And it sounds a bit like a hedge fund and we're not a hedge fund. We're not, um, we don't operate like that at all. Um, so I thought, well, a name, one word could be cool. So I saw Oaksmere was one of them, which sounds like a road again. 
Um, yeah. uh, what else was there? Uh, Stratton, uh, and then Titan Rock, which sounded like an American wrestler. So. Titan Rock, <laughs> yeah. So we never I'm, went with I'm that. I'm getting it. I'm getting it. What's and it then um, Novo Nim. Yeah. So we. Um, Ultimately, uh, I was looking through and the Glenhawk popped up and I thought, okay, I like that. So bought the .com, bought the .co.uk, I think the .com's like 1,500 pounds or something like that. Bought that, the IP rights and so on, um, and then went with it. And then the brand's evolved. We've changed the logo, changed how it looks. And, uh, and that was the thinking behind that. But then now, on hindsight, uh, sorry, in hindsight, uh, clearly a Glen is a valley in Scotland and a hawk is a bird that flies across the two. So technically, we're bridging the gap on people's finances. So such a great shoehorn. I bet like, I, I can't see Ella, but I imagine she's high-fiving you across the office for such an amazing bit of brand work. Probably jumping up and down screaming if she was in there, I think. But um, I no, I mean, that's, that's the backstory to it now. And I think that works quite well. Uh, but yeah, really, it was just total random purchase at the start from uh, Novanim. I'm in, mate. I'm in. I love it. I love it. All right. Okay, you've got time for two questions. Okay, right. So let's have a look what we got. Oh, yeah, okay, that's a good one. First one. Okay, how are you? How are you dealing with the return to work stuff? So, what's your advice for other founders? I personally like it's. Uh, we're trying to be as flexible as possible, but like I don't think that you can be as collaborative when you're not working the same office. I think you need to bounce ideas off each other, and you need to have that environment. That's my personal view. How are you finding yourself, and what's your advice to other founders about how to deal with this return to work process? Yeah. Especially as it looks like there might be another wave. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, we've got all the processes in place here now, but we can only get 17 people in here out of the 30 because of social distancing, So, yeah. which is frustrating. Um, I think pre-lockdown, I was of the mindset that home working doesn't work. Uh, you can be very inefficient. And if you want a quick conversation with someone over the desk, you have to go on Teams or pick up the phone. It's not easy. It's, it's not conducive to a good working environment, I don't think. So... Lockdown happened and we worked really well as a team during lockdown on Zoom, Teams or whatever. And that was all great. And then now we're back in the office um, and you have that physical presence again. It's much more exciting, much more vibrant, vibrant environment. And we're getting a lot more work done. Um, so I think the way we're dealing with it is, is come in uh, if you feel safe to uh, book your time in on when I work that app so you can schedule yourselves in so we don't have too many people in the office for restrictions and um, essentially get back and enjoy the culture and what we found is most some days we'll have like 25 wanting to come in and we'll have to put them in other rooms or we'll have to put them in coffee shops or whatever um, just to get the distancing and um, that's purely because they want to return they want to come back to the office they want to go to the pub on a Monday or Friday or even Wednesday whatever nights we go to the pub uh, and have that um, social life because I think it's very easy to forget that a lot of people might be living in a one-bed apartment at top of a tower block or with their parents or even yeah. even worse in an abusive relationship and you you've got to give people that option to come in and what worries me is any restrictions that are announced tonight go too far and say don't go to the office because then in that case um there's just no point doing another lockdown again i don't think because clearly the first one didn't work so why will the second one um do any better but um from my perspective i'd love people to come back in and they are um but you've just got to manage clearly your risk because health and safety have a direct impact. If I bring too many people back in, someone catches COVID and dies, the health and safety come after me personally. So you have to be very careful um, in how you get people back. But clearly there's a balance going forward in the future of remote working and having it in the office. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Yeah, This is going to go out after the announcement. So I hope that 
Yeah, there isn't. There hasn't been a lockdown because um, it's. I, I didn't enjoy it. Okay, um, I've got two questions for you. Uh, same ones that everyone who gets comes on the show. Where did you waste your most of your time? What was the one thing that you wish you hadn't wasted time on during the build of your business? And the second thing, what is your one piece of Hollywood advice for any founder? Oh, what wish I hadn't wasted my time on? I think for me personally, it was wasting time on trying to launch new products within the first year and a half of the business and trying to rush to grow too quickly. Um, and because we're not a, we're not one of these businesses that will go naught to a billion valuation in a year where five years is the target for something like that, five, six years. And I think it was just that rush to launch new products thinking, okay, let's launch that. Let's launch that. And ripping through cash to try and launch new incentives. And really we should have always just, and we do now stick to our core principles and what we do well. And by doing that and trimming off all the fat that I was trying to do, we've got to the point now where we can start to diversify. We've got the cash flow to go into other ventures and other opportunities, whether it's into consumer credit, personal finance, or uh, proper homeowner mortgages. Um, but really, I wish I'd just focus more on not trying to do that, but that's just the way my mind works and probably your mind works. And it's all over the place and you think, well, we can arbitrage that opportunity, we can do this. Um, but I'd say, yeah, that was my, 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 my biggest regret, but I'm not a big believer in regrets. You learn from them and at the time, it's what you wanted yeah, to do. Yeah, 100%. So. Like that's the, I always think the best thing is the worst. The worst people that come on the show. Now we've had a few people come on the show where we haven't aired it because they've been dicks. Um, but the um, but they it's always the one where like I haven't made any mistakes and you're like fuck off. <laughs> it's like yeah, that it's the whole, that's the whole point of being a founder is that you make mistakes all the time, but you're you have a unique ability to try and find a solution to that, which means that you're going to be stronger. That's the difference, right? Yeah, all about finding solutions. And I suppose the your second part of the question, the, the Hollywood advice research, there's probably two parts that I think in business is. One, which I mentioned earlier, is selling yourself. You've got to be incredibly good at that. If you're not, try and improve it. Pick up, pick up skills. Try and gain some confidence in your business and product. And the selling will come naturally. And you're going to have to sell to everybody you meet when you're running a business. And then secondly would be uh, the team. You've got to hire the best. Uh, you've got to retain them, pay them well, treat them well. And because really 95% of business is people. And you, you've got to have the best because um, clearly I can't do everything. I don't have a clue about treasury or finance or compliance uh, a little bit, uh, but you've got to bring the best possible people into those roles and don't be afraid to delegate. So um, yeah, that's what my two bits of advice would be. I think. I love that. I really love that advice actually. And I'm a hundred percent with you. Hey, look, guy, this has been sensational. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, some really great advice in there. And look, you've built an incredible business, which I'm super jealous of. Um, I love that you've gone after these Titans and you're, you're winning. Um, uh, final point for me as well. I've seen how you guys deal with um, bad reviews on Google, and I just want to give you a high five. It's hilarious. Well done. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, like I don't, I don't, I think you've got this. You've got the wrong company. You've never applied for anything with us. <laughs> Leave us alone, you competitor. I love it. Yeah, very funny, very funny. Uh, but the bravo, guys. Everything's amazing. Thanks so much for coming on. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me, Tom. Cheers. <laughs>